We're thinking about um, words that are lost in translation, and this morning we're going to think of faith. Uh, What is faith? A simple definition. Faith is belief or trust. Well, let's try to tighten the focus and zero in on it a little bit more carefully. Faith is more than believing in a historical figure. So when we talk about having faith in Jesus, we mean more than believing that Jesus existed. You know, we believe that Lincoln existed and Washington existed, but we don't believe that they can do anything for us now. That's the difference between believing in Jesus' existence. Not only that he did exist, but he does exist still, and there's things that he can do for us. Faith is more than agreeing to an orthodox set of doctrines as well. It's more than just putting a check mark next to a certain belief or a certain um, principle. What is faith? Uh, this is Father's Day, and so let's relate faith to parenting. So when a child grows up in home with mom and a dad, what will happen? The child from early on will signal the parent that they have things that they want and don't have or that they have and don't want. And sometimes they're nice about that and sometimes they're not so nice about that. They let us know through crying and, and through different means. What ends up happening over time, the bids for attention that come from a child and when those bids are responded to, it builds this foundation where a child will begin to develop this mental image that my parents will comfort and respond to me when I have issues. And this becomes a very deeply rooted sense of confidence. In fact, what ends up happening when the child becomes a little older, like say two or three, and they get in a place where they have needs, the parent might not be there, but what they're able to do is called object permanence. It's this ability then for the child, even when the parent is not there, to think about how the parent has been there in the past, and the child actually is able to call on the memory of the parent's availability, the mental representation that's been built over time, able to call on that and soothe themselves. My parents have always been here. And when I call out to them, and that I would like to argue is a way that we might understand faith. One way to define it, It's a deeply rooted mental representation of divine responsiveness forged over time. Church, lessons, prayers, little by little, we go through difficult things. We start to develop this representation of God as responsive. And I'd like to suggest that's what faith is. It's not just knowing my parents. It's not just knowing God. It's knowing that God is real. And when I cry out to him, I might not always get what I want, but I know that he hears me because I've experienced things, because I know things, I've learned things. And that's what faith is. And this security, either in a home or spiritually, That sense that I can cry out 
to God when distressed, and he will hear me. That confidence is the root of self-esteem. When a child knows that a parent will be available, the child feels like they're important. I must be important because when I call out to my mom and dad, they're there. So there's a sense of self-esteem. A child will use that sense of confidence. It will become self-control as well. If the child is not alone and knows it, then they don't have to get what they want. They know, I, I can be okay because I know my parents are going to be around. Self-esteem, self-control, mastery. When the child is confident of the parent's ability and availability, they are able to attend to things. They can learn about things and empathy. They feel good about relationships. Faith is a deeply rooted mental representation of divine responsiveness. Um, Jesus tells a parable that we're going to look at this morning in which he depicts Jesus, the father, excuse me, as being this type of father. Let's, let's follow along. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. The story begins with the youngest son requesting the assets that will eventually be his. And the father's not dead yet, but this son's request causes the father to divide the estate between the oldest son, who gets two-thirds, and the youngest son, who gets one-third. And so, as Jewish law prevails, that's probably the way that they would have split it up. And what happens then, uh, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. Each son received his due and is free to do what they want to do with those, with their portion of the estate. The, the older son decides, I'm going to stay here, I'm going to keep my assets and hold them here, and I'm going to continue to work and serve my father. The youngest one, the younger one, uh, makes a different decision. He clearly is looking to disconnect with the father and disconnect with the home. He takes his inheritance and he converts all of it into cash, goes to a distant country. He doesn't just make a short trip. He goes far away, different culture, foreign culture. He wants to leave not only his father and his family, but his culture, his entire way of thinking about life. He leaves it behind, and he just wants to get out of there as far away as he can. So that's what he does. And his life soon collapses. He blows through his money, he doesn't manage it wisely, and then when he's at a place where he doesn't have what he needs, then a famine hits. And that, that turns what is dis uncomfortable into what's dangerous now. So he, uh, it says then, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. With no money, no family, and suffering in a distant land, this guy, and he's probably a teenager, 
most likely he's middle to late teen. Uh, he probably would have been married had that not been the case, but he's not. So this boy then is in trouble. He is in poverty and has nowhere to turn. Um, desperate for food and funds, he has to hire himself out to someone. And the way it worked, if you didn't have a way to be taken care of, you would hire yourself out to a family. And if they had slaves, you were less important to the family than slaves. Slaves were kind of had some status in the family. They were seen as kind of part of the family, but a day laborer, you didn't get any perks. It's the lowest of the the servants that would exist within a household. Um, so that's what he does, and he works for a Gentile, and as a Jewish person, this is not an ideal living arrangement, and to make matters worse, if you are a Jewish person, pigs are unclean. They are not animals that you can eat. You don't want to mess around with them. So this kid ends up having to go to this Gentile farmer, work for him, and tend his pigs. And as it turns out, the pigs are better off than he is. There is no one in this distant land to offer him food, offer him comfort. This kid ends up hitting rock bottom at this point. And then he has an epiphany. And here's what it says. It's when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. The son comes to his senses. It literally says he comes to himself. He comes to this place where he looks at what the pigs are eating, and he understands how hungry he is, and he ends up looking and thinking about his father in a way that he probably never has. He always thought of his father from a son's perspective, from a perspective of privilege and what he had coming to him. But now his experience has been different. So now he looks at his father from the perspective of a servant because he is a servant now to this person who is tending his farm. And he thinks about his, how his father tended and treated the servants that he dealt with and he's perishing from hunger, and it occurs to him, my father would never let this happen to anybody that works for him. And he has an epiphany. He comes to see his father not as someone who is keeping him from getting what he justly deserves, but now he looks at his father from a different perspective. He has been humbled by life, disciplined. He has come to see need and to feel an inability to get what he wants. It seems, biblically, that those who come to see God in a clear way have to experience two things, discipline and discipleship. Discipline and discipleship. Discipline is in biblical parlance. It's In the Bible, it's when an individual 
experiences the inability to use what they have to get what they want. And it's painful. I want you to imagine that you want to be able to get something that you can't love, like food. And this person, imagine if you couldn't get the food you wanted. Your dad didn't work. Your mom didn't work. Imagine that. And you weren't able to get food. You go to the refrigerator. There's nothing in there. That's the kind of experience. That's a humbling situation when you can't use what you have to get what you want. And it seems that those who develop a deep relationship with God have to go through things where they're unable to use what they have to get what they want. I want you to think about your life. And there's, you're blessed, we all are blessed. We live in a great country. But it doesn't mean that we get what we want. There are things that you might want to have and don't have, a different relationship with your family. Maybe on a Father's Day, you don't have your father this year or your mother this year. You don't have the support network you'd like to have. You don't have the savings you'd like to have. You don't like the job. You don't have the job you'd like to have. I want you to think about those things that might feel painful, that might feel like limitations. It seems that those who end up cultivating something deep with God are able to come up with in short order, things that they experience that they'd rather not experience. Discipline, that's what the Bible means. When it talks about discipline in the Bible, it's not talking about how a father punishes or a mother punishes the children. And that can be a very different experience, can't it? Dad's punishment and mom's punishment, uh, it's kind of a, yeah, that, that can be a different deal depending on the family you grew up in. Um, but so when you think of that, that's, Discipline, biblically, is child-rearing. And what it means, it's literally discipline means to be with a child. And it's the picture is of a father or a mother coming alongside a child and creating circumstances and lessons that allow the child to be everything that the child will be. That's the picture of discipline biblically. It's not on what somebody has done something wrong, on what somebody has done wrong in the past. That's not biblical discipline. It doesn't focus on the past. It focuses on the future. And so the painful thing is not about you got angry, so you're going to get... It's about being something in the future. There's discipline, and then there's discipleship. Discipline is the experience of difficulties, things that you would rather not experience in your life, but you can't get rid of. Discipleship is, well, it's what you're doing this morning. Discipleship is about making room in your thoughts for God. Individuals who have a deep thing with God experience discipline and experience discipleship. They have over a period of time continued to expose themselves to places where they think about what God says. This is what you do this morning. You, see, you do it during the week. You might read the Bible sometimes. Everything that you do to cultivate a connection is discipleship. There are people who have discipline. They have difficult parts in their life, but no discipleship. And that's not quite going to do it. There's people who have discipleship, but not the discipline. One individual I think of when I think of that is Judas Iscariot. If you were raised in the first century in Israel, 
and you lived in the South, you were kind of with the upper class. That was the place you want to live. They were spiritually the elite. And all 11 of the disciples lived not in the southern elite part. They lived in the northern part, which is kind of like the suburbs or downtown. It's not. It's where you didn't want to have to live if you didn't have to. The only individuals who've talked about this before who lived in the south was Judas Iscariot. So he had the discipleship with Jesus, but his life had maybe been a little cushier than the life of those in the north, and it, what Jesus had to give him didn't take. It seems then that those two, those who developed something deep with the Father, end up looking at God from the perspective of one who has thought about him and had, has had difficult things in life. Anyways, this son decides, he sees his father in a new light, and he decides what he's going to tell his father. He's going to go to him. He's going to say, I'm unworthy of being received as a family member. He says he's going to ask for daily care and sustenance as a day laborer, the lowest of the classes of laborers. He says, I don't expect to even be a slave. I just want to be a day laborer so that I can work and I can eat. Let's say he departs and carries out his resolution to return and talk to the Father, and little can he anticipate the response that awaits him. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The focus of this parable is not the brothers. It begins by saying there was a man who had two children. This parable is about the father. In fact, it's called the parable of the prodigal son. It's also been called, it's also been called I've seen it, the parable of the prodigal father. No self-respecting father would accept back a son the way this father accepts back his son. And um, the father spots his son while he's still a long way off. He reacts immediately with compassion and acceptance. <laughs> The son must have wondered, I wonder how my father's going to receive. You ever, have that, you ever have that thought in your mind? You know, you've been out, you did something that dad, you know, dad's really not going to approve of this. And so you're thinking about, you're on your way home and you're running the conversation over in your mind. Well, I'm going to say this and I bet he's going to say that. And then I'm going to say this and I bet he's going to say that. This guy must have had the same idea when he was making his way back to his home. I wonder what dad's going to do. And he, he, he doesn't have to wander, he doesn't have to wander long. He's, he's still a long way off. The father runs at him and literally falls on his neck and just embraces and kisses him. The father's greeting of compassion which have, would have made, I want to be a daily laborer. He didn't even get to say it. Uh, it says, uh, he, he didn't get a chance to finish the speech. You know, the part where he says, I'm no longer worthy and just make me a laborer. And the father just, he doesn't even get to say it. So the father said to his servants before his son could make his deal, uh, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. But the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
So they began to celebrate. The father receives his son back with full privileges. He doesn't get another inheritance. He's blown through that. And so the son, the older son, still owns the property. It's not like he gets that back. However, he gets the privileges of being a son. He, uh, he's clothed, a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. The son has, in the idea and the thinking of the father, been resurrected. It's, he was dead. And not in a place where he could connect with him. And now he's alive. The father has regained a lost son. The son he never expected to see again has returned. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And those of us who are oldest children, oldest children here, we understand exactly how this older brother feels. We know exactly. Younger ones, you might too. Us older ones, oh. <laughs> okay, meanwhile, the older son, da-da-da-da, was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants, one of the servants, and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has has him back safe and sound. I always have to say this. I'm sorry, this is a really bad joke. Anyways, there was a, a minister from a, a church that looked down on dancing. And, and the pastor wanted to make this point, that how can a praying knee be attached to a dancing foot? And the guy said, by a fattened calf. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I told you. I told you. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Jake, I need you. Um, uh, the oldest children understand the older, the older brother. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years of enslaving for you. That's interesting, isn't it? That was his perception of the work that he'd done slaving for him. And that's, it is different, isn't it? Those of us who are oldest children, you know what they say about oldest children? Oldest children tend to be the responsible ones. I'm sure you know, like the way I've heard birth order sometimes, it goes like this. There's the hero. And then the next one born is the rebel, and then the clown, and then the lost child. It's not always the way it works. And, uh, but the rebel, so the hero, this is the, you know, but, but, uh, you know, the older one tends to be responsible. The next one looks at that and says, nuts to that. How in the world can I, how can I compete with that? You know, I, now I'm, he's expecting me, my parents expecting me to be like my older sister, my older brother. I can't do that. So then becomes a rebel. And then the third one becomes the clown. And is kind of, you know, the, the kind of distracting. And the fourth one is kind of the lost child. Uh, anyways, um, uh, and he's, this older brother ends up says, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, when the son of yours, who was squandered, yeah, you get that? Son of yours. Um, when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The older son, who always did his duty, has been laboring in the field during his brother's return. And the party's getting going. Then he comes back in from the field. 
a party was going on, and when he was returned, um, as the elder brother approaches the house, he hears music and dancing. He is not pleased at what is happening when he learns. And the older son, the, the older son demands something that makes sense to not just older children. What is the justice in this? What is the justice in this? You know, I've, I've done my time, and this guy squandered everything, and he comes back, and he gets accepted. Where's the justice in that? And the father has a ready reply. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father's reply is as gentle as the brother's question is harsh. He addresses the son's concerns, though. He doesn't blow him off. He he addresses his son tenderly as my child, which is a term of endearment. He reminds the son, that the older one, that all he owns belongs to him. Uh, neither the father's activity nor the brother's return in any way will diminish the older son's status. Um, he should not look lose sight of the benefits he always has because he has access to the father. In fact, in a sense, he always has access to the celebration because all the animals are his. He can do what he wants with them. And, um, he then focuses on the brother. The father will not allow the son's complaint to stand, nor will he allow the elder to separate himself from his brother. Um, and justice has been trumped by mercy. Uh, what do you do with this? Let's, let's three words of application briefly. Uh, number one. Sometimes being a good father means letting a child go and awaiting their return. Some dads have had kids who never strayed from home and have always been faithful and obedient. And that's, you know, but for some dads, you've had to watch a child take a turn that you wish they hadn't taken. And some know the lonely vigil of waiting for the return. And some know the joy of the return, and some still waiting for that return. Um, but sometimes the inability to control circumstances means that you have to just let them go. And then you have to, and what, you know what, Dad's way, really the way it works, isn't it? When you're in a place where your children are not where you'd like them to be, and you can't, you know, you can do the blame game. You can blame yourself, and then you can blame your son. And the blame game, that doesn't lead to very good. That only makes things worse. What do you do when you when blaming doesn't work? You know what you have to do when you're waiting? You have to really feel sad, don't you? It's, we can, it's hard for us to feel sad. Sadness is a hard thing to feel. It feels very lonely to feel sad. Do you know why Jesus tells the story? dads and moms and anyone else. God has room for your grief. When you come to him sad, it's not like he says, after all I've done for you, and you have the, the gall to be sad with me. You know what God wants when you feel sad? Really does. You know what Jesus did when he felt sad? He expressed it to the Father, and he understood that it's something that the Father wanted to hear, and wanted to comfort. You know, I want to tell you two things about God. He has 
really big shoulders. Sometimes if you're in a family and you're distressed, you can't say it because people will get crushed if they understand that everything's not wonderful. Now, it's not all families, but sometimes shoulders aren't as big as they need to be to allow for distress. Sometimes it's not big enough shoulders, not big enough shoulders, it's not big enough heart. Sometimes there's, there's control, but in some homes, if you are distressed, then the person you are distressed with, they break down and then you have to take care of them. You know, you understand what that's like? So you talk about things that are kind of going south, and then they break down, and then you have to take care of them. Here's the deal with God. He has really big shoulders and a really big heart. You're not going to break him by being sad with him. And you're not going to tax his patience. He's not going to be angry with you as you come to him. You know, God, I don't like this. I don't like the way this feels. Uh, Actually, that's what Jesus learned to do. And one of the things that we learn as we grow up and mature, God really wants a relationship with you. And what that means, when you feel things, he wants you to approach the throne of grace and speak freely with him. Don't fix it. Don't fix it. Tell him about it. Share it with him. Big shoulders, big heart. And what God says, all things work together for good. But some of us, what we do, we take those promises in the Bible and we use the promises to push feelings down. Don't do that. I'm like, not don't do that. Let me give you a better thing to do. Take the promises and use them not to push the feelings down, but to lift them up to him. Isn't that what Jesus did? Really, when you think about it, the night before he died, he didn't want to die. And what did he do? He's, I'm the son of God. I can't complain. Take this cup from me. He didn't think, well, I can't say this. He, he felt it and he expressed it. You know why he expressed it? You know why he expressed it to the father? He knew his father had big shoulders and a big heart. And when that's the case, then you can, it's, it can become safe for you to approach the Father and speak freely with him. That's what God wants to teach us. That's why we focus on his commitments, so that we'll learn to be honest with him. It's a hard thing to learn, hard thing to learn. Um, sometimes being a good father means letting a child go and awaiting their return. Um, secondly, God is like the Father in, this par- in the parable. When we see God through the lenses of the Old Covenant, we become mired in unrighteousness like the younger son and self-righteousness like the older one. Um, Jesus reveals God in a way that was unheard of prior to his coming. We talk about faith. Would you agree with me that faith in an old covenant God and faith in a new covenant God are not the same? Would you agree with me? The faith that we're talking about is faith in a God of the new covenant. Faith that that's what our God is like. That's what Jesus reveals him. So, in fact, we have as one of our, really our, our mission focus, we used to be to transform into individuals who 
express faith through love. And we decided that we need to make it clearer than that. So what we decided, our goal is to cultivate people, cultivate, encouraging one another, expressing new covenant faith in love. That's a necessary addition because new covenant faith is really what we're about and it's really what Jesus is talking about here. Um, finally, last thing, focus on cultivating a clear image of God in order to develop new covenant faith. Really good verse. It said, dear friends, now we are children of God. He's our father. Dads, you have a father. Mothers, kids. So it says, we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as we his, as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What it says when this, when the younger son saw the father, he could see him and he could, wait a minute. It's at that point that he's able to go and return to him. Being clear about what the father is like is the most important thing spiritually, non-negotiable. When we see God clearly, it gives us the ability to come towards him. Transformation is the inevitable byproduct of seeing God, which makes a prayer, which I, I've told, talked to before, one of the prayers I can pray, and it always means something. Reveal yourself to me. Reveal yourself. Can you say that to him? God, reveal yourself to me. Help me know what you're like. I don't think I get you clearly. And pray that and continue to come back, and we'll continue to talk about who God is so that we can develop new covenant faith. Let's stand together for closing prayer. Father, thank you for the stories that Jesus told and for stories that only he could tell. No one else could tell a story like this because no one else knew you the way Jesus knew you because he's your son, for eternal, and he could reflect things about you that had been veiled, had not been clearly seen, even on this side of the cross. Um, there is confusion. We think of you as a God of justice, and you are, and a God of mercy, and it's, it's hard to make all this stuff fit, but the fact is, you are a father. You understand where we are. You understand because you sent your son so that you could understand. And you would have us approach the throne of grace and speak freely with you, to learn to do that, to come towards you in times of distress and lean on you. Right? Because you have a really you have big shoulders and a big heart. Thank you for that. Help us to, little by little, cultivate a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.